This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this continued exploration of the Wirecard imbroglio, we look at BaFin, which is still unapologetic. Where should short sellers and reporters be? What is the political fallout? What is happening with Wirecard now? Why Deutsche Bank is not buying any of this? Has the fullness of the scandal been revealed? And what will be the impact on the big three going forward? These questions and others answered. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon. And we are back from summer hiatus with our continuing series on Wirecard. It's been a while since we have been visiting with you, so we thought it might be good to kind of catch up what has happened in this case over the past few weeks. So, uh, Mikhail, uh, first of all, welcome back. Uh, Terrific to be back. Also, um, a little late, but uh, celebrating your, what, 500th episode on the FCPA blog, right? Incredible. Yes. Yeah, that August Um, 31st. Uh, congratulations, uh, a real milestone. Um, probably didn't expect to, to see that happen so swiftly. So, ah, uh, yeah, in the intervening time, Wirecard has not let us down. Every week, new and exciting developments. Truly, as Wirecard turns the soap opera, or as the Germans like to say, Seifenoper, with more plot twists uh, than Lindenstrasse, for those of you not up on your German soap operas. It's Germany's longest running soap opera. Okay, where where are we? Boffin, unapologetic. Let's start with he who just won't admit to being wrong. Felix Hofeld, head of Germany's Boffin. That's right, folks. Felix isn't just holding on. He has refused, that's right, refused to re- resign over the wirecard debacle. He does now acknowledge that with hindsight, he maybe should have asked prosecutors to open an investigation into Wirecard a wee bit sooner than he did. Actually, he didn't actually ever ask them. Uh, However, he does claim Boffin's failings were really because the agency just put too much faith in, quote, formal instruments, relying upon them too extensively. As if that's the problem. German MPs have been calling for him to step down, but Felix is having none of it thus far. In uh, now what I like to call a hoofedlism, he accuses his detractors of lacking, quote, open-mindedness. After accusing them of failing to have open mind, uh, he flung a clump of litter at EY in an effort to distract MPs from the scrutiny of him. But at least he stopped shaming short sellers, so I guess there's progress. And speaking of short sellers, yes, exciting news for short sellers and reporters alike. Just the other week, Munich's public prosecutor's office said it had failed to find sufficient evidence to support its case against at least the Financial Times journalists. A case against short seller was also quietly dropped. With respect to dropping its investigation into the reporters who published stories of Wirecard's malfeasance, it only took 18 plus months or three months after Wirecard imploded. But really, who's keeping track? Political fallout? 
Oh, yeah, there's been some. Germany's parliamentarians have finally reached their upper limits uh, with their patience with Boffin. Go figure. And various and sundry they've interviewed over the past weeks in limited closed-door special hearings. So a few weeks ago, the Bundestag announced that it will now hold a full hearing into Wirecard's implosion. Boffin representatives, and that includes Mr. Hoffeld, top advisors from Merkel's government, staff of the country's FIU, Munich prosecutor's office, all spent the better part of August pointing fingers at one another. Uh, fed up with the blame game, a full parliamentary uh, committee of inquiry will now be opened, and it starts shortly. Uh, this means a full investigation into who in the G German government knew what about Wirecard and when. Uh, expect this inquiry to dominate, at minimum, German headlines and likely throughout the EU as Merkel winds up her final term in office and the German election year kicks off. After all, we are still wondering why Merkel was lobbying for Wirecard years after short sellers had published their scathing questions, years after foreign regulators had contacted German authorities about Wirecard, and months after some of the damning FT stories had been published. But then Chancellor Merkel was also here in California lobbying our state regulators to reduce emission standards in favor of German automakers whilst Dieselgate was being investigated. I, I don't know if it's German chubbiness with business, politics, and regulators, or just a catastrophically um, cut off chancellery. And speaking of fallout on German elections from Wirecard, he who hopes to be chancellor, current finance minister Olaf Scholz, quietly mentioned to German newspaper Handelsblatt that, oh yes, that whole business of Boffin employees trading in Wirecard shares, uh, the you know, of the company they were meant to be regulating, apparently entirely on his own volition, Scholz came to the stunning conclusion that regulators profiting from the companies they regulate could maybe, just maybe, pose a conflict of interest. Actually, he said the mere appearance of conflict of interest should be avoided. So he has determined that Boffin will now promulgate new regulations governing uh, employee transactions. Oh, and Ministry of Finance, those folks will also be subject to stricter rules. What those rules will be haven't actually been shared as yet. But he's serious this time. Who even knew that whole conflict of interest stuff could be so problematic? Why didn't somebody tell him? Expect this to be the least embarrassing question he is asked by Parliament when those hearings open. This could be why in early September, German MPs were not just questioning Schultz about Wirecard, but also the Comex tax fraud scandal and whether he is really the right person to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor. German papers reported Schultz being dragged across the proverbial coals. Apparently, Olaf isn't just fielding awkward questions about his ministry's handling of Wirecard. Turns out, in addition to his chattiness with Wirecard uh, executives uh, prior to the scandal uh, breaking, turns out he may have also made calls to friends over at the Hamburg Tax Authority regarding dropping charges against a friend who was a CEO of one of the banks implicated in the Comex tax fraud. 
Germany Inc. Inspiring confidence. And wait for this. There's been another German-listed corporate scandal. Remember back in episode two, we talked about short sellers, one of whom, Viceroy Research, had been really one of the most vocal in raising questions about the figures Wirecard was bandying about. They, of the 100-plus page damning report on Wirecard calling out the fake revenue, well, rather awkwardly, Viceroy published another report this past week, only it wasn't about Wirecard. Wirecard has a doppelganger. The facts and circumstances bear an uncanny and striking resemblance to Wirecard. And worst of all for Germany, Inc., it is another German-listed company. This fintech specializes in IT leasing for the B2B sector and provides financial services to IT resellers. Viceroy, after giving regulators advance notice a few weeks ago, published a report about German fintech company Grenka. 64 pages of ill and oh dear. Similarities to Wirecard, they abound. Viceroy accuses Grenke of blatant accounting fraud involving dozens of unrelated party transactions, complete and utter lack of internal controls, including failure to perform due diligence on customers, overvaluing dubious assets, and the financing of, quote, dozens of fraudulent schemes around the globe. But the resemblances don't stop there. Wirecard? Subsidiaries around the world? Check. Grenka. Subsidiaries around the world? Check. Wirecard. Operated a bank? Check. Grenka. Operated a bank? Check. Claimed exponential growth in assets? Wirecard? All present. Grenka? All present, miss. Missing cash? Wirecard? Mm-hmm. Grenka? Claims of in excess of a billion euros cash or cash equivalent missing or non-existent. Accusations of laundering for criminal enterprises via binary option scams, crypto scams, and fraudulent unregulated trading platforms. You may think I'm talking about Wirecard. I'm describing Grenka. Boffin received complaints and warnings of laundering on Grenka as well. That's right. And connection to an Austrian company and Austrian executives. And the parallels are not just notable. Grenke is the Wirecard mini-me. Accessories sold separately. No mini-me. We do not gnaw on our shareholders. The only key difference mini-me Grenke doesn't appear to have is a CFO. But not unlike Wirecard, apparently their COO handles all their accounting. Wasn't it Wirecard's COO that Pi Piper them to infamy? So, Tom, I think we're going to have to start another podcast series. We'll call it mm, The Long and Short of It, and we'll just cover the endless succession of companies short sellers accuse of fraud. Will we restrict it just to German companies? I don't know. 
but we were going to be the new London. So what does this mean for Germany? Any impact? Are we rethinking maybe that move to Frankfurt? Wirecard's spectacular failure is viewed by German opposition parties, uh, not, not unrightly, as a national disgrace and one which is causing serious harm to the country's reputation as a financial center. It was assumed that when the UK fully leaves the EU this December, that many banks and investment firms would leave London and relocate to Germany. Now there are questions as to how reliable German regulators are, leaving investors from outside Deutschland's borders wondering if the country isn't more focused on protecting its own rather than investors' money. Remember back in 2017, and the if and the when and the how of Britain leaving the EU was still being determined? EY, and there they are again, conducted a survey of the financial sector operating in Britain, right? And at that time, some 68 of some 200-plus companies they surveyed claimed they intended post-Brexit to relocate staff to the continent, with Frankfurt as one of the top two destinations for banks, brokerages, asset managers, insurance firms, fintechs. That's where they were headed, or so they said. That same survey estimated some 10,000-plus financial service jobs leaving the UK before December 31st, 2020. Many of them believed they were headed to Germany. A year later, a lobbying group out of Frankfurt, uh, Frankfurt Main Finance, released results of its own research suggesting London would lose some $800 billion worth of assets to Frankfurt as financial institutions up and moved operations in preparation for Brexit. They had identified this lobbying group, at least 30 firms claiming to have selected Germany as their new European financial base. And, and it's true, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all said they were planning to open multiple post-Brexit European centers. Predictions were that Frankfurt would be the new London for the European financial world. German politicians were encouraged uh, and, and thought, okay, let's incentivize these, these moves. Uh, they even proposed uh, to amend some legislation on labor laws that were considered restrictive at the time. They thought, this is our opportunity, both political and economic. And it's, it is true that many banks have established European banking offices based out of Frankfurt in the past few years. By January of this year, more than 1,400 EU-based firms have applied for permission to operate in the UK after Brexit, with over a 1,000 of those planning to establish their first UK office. In fact, a freedom of information request was made to the UK's FCA, and it evidenced that not so many financial companies were planning to leave London after all. Many of these 1,400-plus companies have applied to use the temporary permission regime, which will allow EEA firms using passport for a limited period. Basically, it allows them to extend the passporting through the transition period. Can we attribute this to Wirecard? Some 69 firms, according to the think tank New Financial, have elected to move to Paris. Only 45 firms selected Frankfurt. B of A, already in Paris. JP Morgan, yeah, they do have a Frankfurt office, but 
they just bought the BNP Paribas office offices in Paris. Frankfurt even lost its bid to be the home to the European Banking Authority. Now, while that doesn't represent a huge presence of people, it is highly symbolic. Where did the EBA elect to move? Paris. New York and London still holding top places. So whilst the current pandemic may be contributing factor to slower decisions on the part of these financial firms, not leaving London quite yet, Frankfurt has not been successful in its attempt to lure uh, even the derivatives clearing market to it. That was a big push. Does that matter? Well, serving as a clearing center, like New York or London, has helped London and New York to retain their top places, and certainly helped London to retain its top place in Europe, as Europe's financial center. The Deutsche Borse's Eurex Clearing Exchange has admitted to a much slower Euro clearing growth than it anticipated. And when I think about Wirecard and the political fallout for Germany, Simon English in the Evening Standard a few months ago recounted an antidote, and I think it's highly reflective of why it's very unlikely the financial sector is going to flee London for Frankfurt or really any other German city for that matter. He said about 10 years ago, he had a meeting at the Bank of England with someone fairly high up. Now, on the record, this official had expressed concern about London financial business being lost to other countries, and particularly on the continent. Privately, that official told English he thought it was a joke. The official went on to describe how German regulators had been on the phone all week to the Bank of England, worried about Deutsche Bank. And they asked the BOE official if they knew what was going on in Deutsche, because they admitted they most certainly did not. German regulators knew that this massive bank was tottering, and they were, to quote Mr. English, rather hoping that the London watchdogs were on top of it. That, my friends, sums it up. In the wake of Wirecard, it really now appears that Frankfurt, or any other major German city for that matter, will be unable to transform itself into a tier one financial center along the lines of London or New York. If the allegations of fraud at Grenke prove accurate, that will only further undermine confidence in the German financial regulatory regime. Remember back in episode three, we talked about Germany Inc. Provincialism, perhaps the myopia, myopia toward only the advantages of stakeholder capitalism and not its deficiencies, where regulator oversight takes a back seat and has created an environment that just puts investors off. Wirecard has exposed the underbelly of Germany's snug relationship between politicians and regulators and the very people who run these German-based companies. Really, this is more along the lines of collusion. I mean, when the GC of Wirecard is asking the regulator to run interference because it doesn't like being challenged about its published revenue figures, there's a problem. We talk about this a lot when we discuss ethical culture and combating conflicts of interest, antitrust oversight, etc. And that is revolving doors between the regulator and the regulated 
it's a grossly unhealthy practice. Combined with a laxer enforcement regime, understaffed, underfunded, lack of expertise, it isn't confidence-inspiring. Frankfurt may be a top-rated place to live, but visit for the old town and the museums, maybe leave your money in London. The regulators there, they're still best in class. And All right, I admit a little bit of home team bias, but only a modicum of it. So where is Wirecard now? Is the company still even going? Yes and no. Recall that back in late June, Wirecard AG filed for insolvency and the Munich court made the appointment of Munich-based lawyer Michael Jaffa as preliminary administrator. Now I'll recall that whilst Wirecard AG had no liquidity available from the time it filed for its insolvency, its other related business units, Wirecard Technologies, Wirecard Issuing Technologies, Wirecard Service Technologies, Wirecard Acceptance Technologies, Wirecard Sales International Holding, and Wirecard Global Sales were not part of that initial uh, administrative filing. Well, the other week, the local court in Munich opened the official insolvency proceedings and appointed Jaffa as the insolvency administrator. This gives Jaffa the power to dispose of Wirecard's assets. The six affiliated units I just mentioned can now also file their claims for insolvency. So beyond causing excitement in the world of bankruptcy law, what came from this? Jaffa wasted no time. In late August, literally a day after the court opened the official proceedings, giving Jaffa license to take over, he told nearly 50% of Wirecard AG's staff, your presence is no longer required. I believe he couched it as having, quote, irrevocably released these folks of their employment contracts. Out of 1,300, 730 employees out of a job. Although, given that the company is an administration, this could hardly have come as much of a surprise. 220-some of those remaining stay on in their roles at Wirecard Bank, which is not an insolvency, just merely being investigated by multiple regulators for having allowed dirty money to flow through the customer accounts. Jaffa did tell reporters that as he put Wirecard through the liquidation process, the events <laughs> that led to the company's demise are being investigated in tandem. He noted that given the volume of transactions and related data that must be combed through, any liability claims arising from unauthorized actions or breach of duties will take some time. If it's any consolation to the now redundant employees? Thomas Eichelman, chairman of Wirecard's five-person supervisory board, resigned, along with his fellow board members. Perhaps the fact that they hadn't been paid since the company's insolvency proceeding opened back on June 25th had something to do with it? Or it could be that now that Jaffa holds all of the decision-making power, they realize there really isn't much reason to stick around. Certainly, board member Alexander von Nuh, he who joined the company back in 2005 and was made 
CFO in 2018, may be questioning why he hadn't timed his departure just a little bit sooner. After all, his name appears in some partner affiliations that may yet prove awkward to explain. The same holds true for board member Suzanne Steidel, who's been an employee since 2006, most recently as the head of products. You know, like the fraudulent MCA offerings we discussed in episode five that were supposedly generating all manner of income in Brazil and Turkey. That nervousness they may be feeling isn't likely entirely due to not having been paid for the past two months. Meanwhile, Wirecard Solutions, the UK entity, parceled up and with many of its people, clients, and technology, sold off to RailsBank. Uh, for those of you who don't follow tech startups, RailsBank uh, is a tech startup that is backed by Visa. Uh, Wirecard's Brazilian entity uh, sold to subsidiary of PogSeguro Digital for an undisclosed sum, uh, and the proceeds of that sale are going to benefit the creditors. And according to Jaffa, more than 140 parties have shown interest in various bits and pieces of uh, the Wirecard carcass. But one very large name is surprisingly no longer a committed shopper of Wirecard. A couple of weeks ago, Deutsche Bank, there they are again, announced it would no longer pursue its planned purchase of Wirecard AG's banking arm. Apparently, Al Jaffa priced it too high in Deutsche's estimation. Deutsche had planned to build up its payment business with the acquisition and had submitted a bid. Jaffa thought the offer too stingy, and I guess Deutsche will just have to satisfy itself with having poached a Wirecard senior executive. Well, that's right. Jaffa was giving those folks away, wasn't he? Ooh. Did anything else come out? Amid the fire sale, the FT continued its expose by releasing yet another Wirecard story at the start of September. This one highlighted the lengths to which certain executives at Wirecard went to conceal the fraud as results of the KPMG uh, audit through the company into chaos. And we've spoken about McKinsey and Company, the consulting firm, a couple of episodes back, having provided advisement to the company. But at that time, it was never entirely clear why Wirecard had engaged them in the fall of 2019. Apparently, then-CEO Marcus Braun retained McKinsey to help him sell the idea of Wirecard buying, wait for it, Deutsche Bank. That's right. <laughs> Deutsche Bank. You know, the German bank that was going to buy some of Wirecard's carcass, but hitherto, the German bank that had been embroiled in dozens of scandals around money laundering, sanction busting, and fraud. Talk about a marriage made in heaven. You're dead to me, Tinder. Wirecard has found its new future spouse. Codename Project Panther. Panther. The thought was that with such a massive deal, the missing 1.9 billion euros out of Wirecard Asia could be camouflaged and possibly just written off as a post-merger impairment charge. <laughs> oh, sure. After all, Deutsch would have come with 1.4 trillion in assets, although only worth 14 billion euro. 
And remember McKinsey associated with that same effort? This is the firm that told the Wirecard board that they had little to no due diligence or any money laundering controls in place. If you forget about that, go back to episodes three and four, just rewind and listen to that discussion, then come back. The most audacious part of Project Panther, if as if purchasing Deutsche Bank just to obscure the Tufel somehow can't account for a couple billion missing. The scramble from the fall of 2019 to mid-2020 were the lengths to which certain Wirecard executives went to hide the truth about this non-existent $1.9 billion. So whilst certain board members scoffed at allegations of this absent revenue, once again, our boy, Jan Marsalek, that's right, our favorite malefactor, who unspooled the seats to buy time, right? EY is there. This is Wirecard's auditor. EY had contented itself with balance confirmations from the supposed Singapore-based trustee. See episode five, folks. But special auditors KPMG insisted on original documentation. Curses! Apparently, Marsalek initially responded by telling... KPMG, that Wirecard had changed bank accounts and shifted them to a new trustee in the Philippines. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Because shifting trustees from Singapore to the Philippines comes across as an entirely plausible move by a multinational. KPMG kept pushing So our ring dropper arranged for an in-person meetings out in the Philippines for the KPMG auditors. The KPMG folk fly out there. They meet a lawyer who was the ostensibly new trustee, accompanied by Marsalek. Oh, by the way, and said counsel is now claiming he was framed. They also met Christopher Bauer of PayEasy. Definitely listen to episode five, folks, if you missed this. And visited branches of the two Philippine banks, BDO and BI, where bank employees handed over copies of bank statements. Except this is where it got really tricky, because the bank accounts didn't exist. So who were those KPMG folks meeting in the bank branches? The real employees didn't find it odd that strangers were meeting in their bank offices? That question still hasn't been satisfactorily answered. But at any rate, KPMG remained skeptical gosh, wonder why, and kept insisting on meeting with Wirecard senior managers in Singapore and Dubai. So demanding, these auditors. Alas, Marsalek wasn't allowing that to happen. Now, it transpires that Wirecard supervisory board briefly did toy with firing both Braun and Marsalek back in April of this year. Right? This is as KPMG is winding up. This part is terrific. The idea of firing these two was only supported by Wirecard's head of the board's Risk and Compliance Committee. <laughs> like when will corporate leaders actually start listening to the compliance experts? As the deliberations over Sykes and Fagan, as I like to call them, continued in the boardroom, 
EY is seemingly now a bit nervous over KPMG's reluctance to sign off on Wirecard's financial health. They now ask to meet with those Philippine bank employees themselves. Okay, a few years late, but they sort of got there in the end, kind of. Due to the pandemic that had now taken out over the world, they couldn't meet the employees in person. So like we all do, they held a Zoom call. The ostensible employees held their ID badges up to the camera to allay the EY folks of their concerns regarding legitimacy. But then... EY tried to confirm that these bank people were real by conducting some very quick online due diligence, and they couldn't find them on social media. I'm not sure if this is my favorite part or just one of so many. Fast forward to the present. Members of the EY audit team now say they suspect that they actually had a Zoom call with actors just posing as bank employees and that the background they saw was just a mock-up of a bank branch. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. By late April, early May, even EY was quietly coming to the conclusion that not all at Wirecard was as it seemed. It has now been revealed that EY demanded Wirecard immediately transfer 440 million euros in four tranches from this ostensible Philippine bank accounts and repatriate the money into Wirecard's bank account in Germany. EY thought this will uh, confirm that the money exists. Bronner Marsalek, would it be an unprofessional to begin referring to them as pinky in the brain? I don't know. Keep telling EY, any moment now, any moment now, those transfers are going to come through. Just don't hold your breath. EY continued to assume that Marsalek and Braun were telling the truth. They continued to assume this as late as June 2nd and actually shared an all-clear draft audit opinion for Wirecard's 2019 accounts, June 2nd of this year, folks. Eventually, eventually, EY tired of waiting and called the Philippine bank's respective headquarters. This is about June 16th. Only to learn from them that, oops, no accounts existed. Once again, the Wirecard Supervisory Board met and discussed sacking Braun and Marsalek. Now, wouldn't you think at this juncture, this might be a vote that passed? This time, two members of the board were in favor of sacking Braun. So, hey, that was a 50% increase in votes to toss him out. Unfortunately, they couldn't get to a majority vote. So, Braun and Marsalek squeaked past and held on to their jobs. Again. This, of course, gave time to the to Marsalek or the brain to flee, where a month or so ago we found him apparently holed up under the protection of the Russians. Old news. Go back a few episodes. Okay, so meanwhile, back in the Philippines. Very recently, that country's National Bureau of Investigation and its anti-money laundering authority. Remember that list of 57 people of interest we talked about in episode three? 
Well, they shared it with the German authorities last week and sought Germany's assistance with the Philippine investigation. Known to be included on the list are bank officers at, well, not unsurprisingly, BDO Unibank and Bank of the Philippine Islands, you know, the folks who forged the bank statements. The Philippine immigration personnel we are all very familiar with, Christopher Bauer, he who may or may not be available in an existential sense, and of course, Hermarsalik. Now, the head of the Philippines' anti-money laundering council said with respect to seeking help and finding these folks, quote, without a predicate offense, we can't proceed with our money laundering case against these foreigners. Quite. The FT also revealed more of the background on what their investigative reporters endured in the breaking of the Wirecard story and their subsequent articles. Dan McCrum, who, by the way, has been given a movie deal and a book deal, wrote about his experiences of being attacked by established players in the financial industry, subject to abuse online for his efforts, threatened constantly with lawsuits. Some of the examples he provided included a research analyst with Germany's Commerce Bank publicly accusing him of criminal market manipulation. He wrote a wire card using sophisticated eavesdropping on reporters' cell phones, how they had to air gap his office at the FT as he wrote these articles. Wirecard even attempted to bribe another FT reporter to pull their posts about Wirecard on FT's financial blog, Alphaville. And what was perhaps one of the most stunning figures to come out of Wirecard was that as the company was collapsing in early June, It was spending 120 million pounds a year on advice. Where was the advisement coming from? Not just EY. Law firms Herbert Smith Freehills, they're the ones that were suing the FT and the FT reporters. European law firm Field Fisher and Control Risks, the consultancy, they were the ones investigating the investigators never once questioning or even seemingly performing their own due diligence as to the merits of what was being published. FTI, another global consulting firm, they were Wirecard's public relations team, parroting the lies Braun and Marsalek told them. We haven't yet heard these firms' excuses for their involvement in possibly abetting Wirecard's financial fiasco. Will shareholders' alleged complicity accuse them of sanctioning Wirecard's misleading statements and go after them too? Has there been significant impact on the advisors? Tom, you recall, Enron had a not insignificant impact on the then Big Five. Very not insignificant. Do we think Wirecard is going to have impact on the big four in the same way? The lawsuits against E&Y, as well as Wirecard's directors, are really beginning to stack up. One is actually hard-pressed to miss the reminders from various law firms that class action filing deadlines are looming. Sign up now if you're an investor, or you were. But for our listeners who miss the very public pronouncements, The big four have been helpfully chiming up, unsolicited, on how, thanks to Wirecard, they're going to 
change the way they conduct themselves now. Bob Moritz, global chair of PwC, said the other week that he's pledging his firm to aggressively, his words, not mine, step up how they hunt for fraud. This wirecard thing's got him thinking. Auditors need to be more insistent about rootling out fraud. <laughs> Go on. He says PwC is going to, quote, double down on the quality of its audits. Bob, why am I not feeling reassured? Try not holding on to audit clients for decades at a time. Oh, and think about hiring more real financial crime experts, preferably those with a deep streak of cynicism. EY has lost a couple of audit clients in the wake of Wirecard and their failure to spot this not insignificant fraud. But here's an irony for you. An arm of Deutsche Bank, <laughs> again, God, its asset management arm known as DWS, they're one of the clients that jettisoned EY as their auditor just at the start of this month. But it wasn't entirely because of the way EY missed a trick or two. No, it was an anticipation of the pending lawsuits against EY. DWS was afraid of conflicts because they had bet heavily on Wirecard. German Commerce Bank, you know, the same people that uh, had an analyst who accused the FT reporter of criminal conduct, they ditched EY as their auditor. Not to be caught on the back foot, EY's chairman, Carmine DeCibio, issued a letter for the firm's partners to share with its clients. EY, quote, regrets that they didn't uncover the wirecard fraud sooner. <laughs> I should imagine so. One can't help but imagine they are deeply regretting this particular embroglio. In the letter to clients, after erroneously congratulating themselves for discovering the fraud at last, seriously, folks, they actually claim they discovered this. EY claims that Wirecard was a, quote, highly complex criminal network and one, quote, designed to deceive everyone. Everyone, that is, except investors and journalists who actually did some research. Decipio went on to say that EY would now increase its reliance upon technology to improve its audit quality, including, quote, using electronic confirmation for audit evidence and, wait for this novel approach, quote, matching the company's records of bank transactions with those provided to EY by the banks. <laughs> so let me, get this. let me get this straight, EY. You are proposing as auditors you will tick and tie from original documentation? Whoa, mind-blowing. A breakthrough change from modern audit practices. Checking my snarkiness, EY also committed to gathering more third-party data during their audits. Now, this all sounds delightful, but not so fast. Let's dissect these promises a bit. Wirecard's fraud and laundering didn't actually deceive everyone. Investors who were not privy to Wirecard's accounts and bank statements figured out the company's malfeasance a decade ago. Those short sellers performed some of the most basic due diligence. They physically traveled out to the claimed third parties Wirecard had acquired, those supposedly generating vast sums of revenue, 
and determined without the aid of artificial intelligence or an algorithm that the entities just didn't actually exist. They were fraudulent, plain and simple. They took public numbers, including, including the audited financials released by EY, and compared them to figures Wirecard claimed on investor calls and called BS. Investigative reporters, based off a handful of spreadsheets, one of which led FT reporters to realize the scope of the fraud because the companies Wirecard listed on the spreadsheet, those they claimed were clients, some of them were known to be defunct entities. You didn't need the bank statements to recognize that. Reporters conducted interviews, and admittedly, some were whistleblowers, and they combed through publicly available information to determine that Wirecard's numbers, they didn't add up. They started digging into those six years ago. Bank statements, actual copies from the bank, that's one of those fundamental auditor and forensic accountants and prosecutors and financial investigators and tax authorities, investors, well, gee, just about anyone who works in or around money knows about original bank statements. Get the originals from the bank. Ideally, go to the bank's central custodian of records, not the customer relations representative. It isn't a novel concept. That EY has to now declare this is something they're going to begin doing? As an investor, I'd feel a little queasy about this revolutionary new approach to auditing they're claiming. There really isn't an excuse. Will we be reduced to the big three after the lawsuits settle how many years from now? Will this prove an opportunity to the BDOs and Grant Thorntons? By the way, they also were auditors of Wirecard, various subsidiaries. Is it time for a different form of accounting, that of the auditors? You know, Chief Executive Grant Thornton, David Dunkley, told British MPs at hearings in January that it was not his firm's job to uncover fraud. He actually told Parliament, we're not looking for fraud. We're not looking at the future. We're not giving a statement that the accounts are correct. Those were his words. This comes down to integrity and objectivity. Too often, professional service firms place too much weight on retaining the not insignificant fees clients generate, building and maintaining entirely too close a relationship with the company's executives, losing objectivity along the way. Those within the firms who do raise a question about the client's activities can often find themselves swiftly pushed aside. This year, all of the UK's top auditors failed to hit quality targets for checking companies' books. The Financial Reporting Council released its report, and none of the big four, EY, KPMG, Deloitte, PwC, none of them managed to surpass the 90% target of its audits being assessed as good quality. Patisserie, Valerie, Carrion, Rolls-Royce, BT, Lloyd's, BHS, Thomas Cook Group, Autonomy, the list goes on. As the FRC observed at the same hearings with Parliament, and the, and the inquiry was into these colossal audit failures, 
people's livelihoods, savings, and pensions all depend on the auditor's job being done to a high standard. But too many fall short. More than a quarter of big company audits are considered substandard by the regulator. Next week, we'll look at Russia, as we had promised a couple of episodes ago. Tom? Mikhail, I frankly cannot wait. There's more good stuff to come. I'm telling you, they never let us down week after week. Well, until next week, then. Okay, Tom, we'll see you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this special episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I said in the introduction, Mikhail, Ryder, Gordon, and myself are going to be taking a deep dive on the Wirecard case over the next several weeks. I hope you will join us again. This special podcast series will focus on the events on the ground and each week, and then we're going to take a deep dive. Some of the topics we're going to cover include Germany, Inc., the regulatory response, what this means for the overall fintech and EU regulatory world, and a variety of other interesting angles to the Wirecard case. I hope you will stick with us throughout this series. I know you will find it incredibly enjoyable as this is one of the largest frauds uh, since the Enron Worldcon days and the largest accounting fraud in Germany since World War II. It's going to be a ton of fun. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate that on iTunes. The series on Wirecard is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.